Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 82. Major props to Louisa Wilcox last week coming in with a special podcast as part of Counterpunch Radio, trying to broaden a little bit what we do here, give uh, some new voices, some new perspectives, and certainly new topics. So I was very pleased uh, to hear that, and I'm very grateful for those of you coming back to listen to another installment of the show. I think that uh, counterpunch is so critical right now. Uh, I mean, it seems to me, and this is what we're going to really talk about today, things do seem to be escalating. And uh, in such times, I think we really fall back on and rely on our most trusted uh, alternative media outlets, the places that we know we can go for resistance-oriented uh, you know, discourse. And when I say resistance, I, of course, don't mean the corporate Democrat version of resistance, but real resistance, real critical analysis, critical perspectives, and I would add a, a, a motivated following of people who are trying to organize. I think that all of those things really kind of put counterpunch front and center in the fight for um, you, know, you know these sorts of critical uh, perspectives and so if you agree that counterpunch is so valuable in such times consider getting a subscription to the print magazine it's really a great way of supporting counterpunch but also getting something out of it I love that magazine I love getting it in my mailbox I, I, I like reading through it slowly over the course of a number of weeks going back rereading articles I'm fortunate enough to have been a contributor there but of course many others regularly contributing the current issue is a, it's i mean it's a real uh, I think critical contribution as it is seemingly every other month. So please do consider that. Of course, also you can support this show by giving us positive reviews on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all of the platforms. And uh, if you want to support Counterpunch but you're not really looking for that magazine, go ahead and give a little donation through the PayPal feature. Pick up the phone, call Becky out there in uh, California. Um, you know, come at me on Twitter. I'll direct you to Jeff Sinclair and Josh and you can, uh, you can tell them what you think of them, how much you love them, how much you hate them, how much you never heard of them. All of those things very much uh, within, within your grasp. So do consider doing that. Anyway, uh, long, rambling, unnecessary words aside, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm so happy to have her back on the show. Uh, if, I, if you asked me to put together a short list of the people in this world who I respect the most, she would undoubtedly be on that list list and very, very high, I would add. Um, if you haven't heard the earlier episode with her, I guess it was now like maybe a year and a half ago, do consider going back into the archives if you can and finding that. It is, of course, the inimitable Kathy Kelly. Uh, Kathy with Voices for Creative Nonviolence. That's vcnv.org. She also works with a, a number of young people, uh, some of whom are involved with OurJourneyToSmile.com, which we will talk about, and uh, the Global Days of Listening, globaldaysoflistening.com, another important resource. Uh, we'll talk about all of that. Kathy Kelly, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks for doing all these 80 installments of Counterpunch Radio and all the education accomplished and outreach. Oh, thank you. Gosh, 80. I can't, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, it, you were like, I think, I want to say episode six. Something like that, episode five, six, seven, somewhere around there. And it's interesting that I'm having you back now, and it's sort of 
there is a feeling of you know the more things change the more they stay the same and uh you know we were we were told that Donald Trump the the rise of Donald Trump meant a new chapter in US foreign policy and yet here we are we have North Korea Yemen Syria Iraq and uh many Afghanistan many other places really on the front burner and so I thought it was really critical to have you back so let's begin there do you get a sense that we are seeing an escalation in the war machine? I mean, that's what it feels like to me, the rhetoric, but also the material reality on the ground. Every day we have new stories about bombardments from the United States in Mosul, in Syria, in all of these different, in, in Afghanistan. Does it feel like we're escalating? And if it does, are we escalating towards something bigger? What's your sense, Kathy? Well, my sense is that the president's administration is very erratic and unpredictable. And if you're working for a major military contractor, this could be a, a, a time of great encouragement because it seems as though the president is willing to uh, try out new bombs, uh, massively send bombs like the 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles to places where the you know people are are caught unaware is caught by surprise and it seems also that um president trump is not terribly interested in lengthy briefings on a daily basis that would put him in touch with the uh, foreign policy decision making and and military decision making that usually is associated with his office. He apparently, uh, unlike President Obama, who sometimes would you know plow through a 140-page briefing report and then ask for more, uh, President Trump has said two pages will be enough and try to include a lot of pictures and graphs. And sometimes he doesn't <laughs> read the two pages. So this means for the generals a bit of a green light, doesn't it? If he's saying well. Uh, everybody knows what happened when he was asked whether or not he authorized the strike against Syria. And he says, I trust my military. We have a great military. And there's kind of that bombastic, egotistical boasting. Well, uh, the generals might then um, see this as the high time without a lot of oversight. In fact, there have been a lot of um, offices that haven't even been appointed uh, in the new administration that formerly would have exercised some oversight over the military. So without um, so much accountability being required, this is a, a time when we can see that generals can pursue what they might not have been able to do otherwise. And so if they want to send a signal to North Korea by dropping the massive ordnance air charger bomb on Afghanistan, well, who who would stop them at this point? Uh, likewise, the launching of the 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles on Syria, I, I think there will be uh, a great deal of certainly anxiety over how General Mattis is going to conduct himself as he meets with Qataris and Saudis in terms of what that might mean for war in Yemen and continued U.S. complicity with what I believe are clearly war crimes against the Yemeni civilian population. And then uh, General Mattis has had a, a, a long uh, antagonism toward Iran. And so uh, what, what will that mean for the future? It's, it's a very frightening time because the confluence of these various uh, conflicts could, could lead toward a world war. It seems so unthinkable, but I've been reading another history of uh, World War One and the build-up toward World War One and the, and the tremendous effort people put forth to try to stop 
that war. And and it's sobering to realize how the um, the great powers, some of them not terribly rational, and the great military contractors can push and push for new wars. That's that's right. And, you know, I've brought it up, I think, on this show or certainly in, in various places, and it's so relevant to what you're saying. At one time, I, I guess this was a few years ago now, um, I was doing a little bit of research into the period leading up to World War One, and one of the things that is really striking is if you look at some of the contemporary literature, I don't mean, you know, political stuff, and I don't mean the, you know, the newspapers of the day, but if you look at things like literary magazines, popular publications, things of that nature, I mean... Everything was so frivolous in the June, July days of 1914, talking about, you know, the equivalent of what today we would call like Kim Kardashian and reality TV and things like that. Literally, at the moment that you had these diplomats and leaders and kings and czars and all of that making the decision that would, in just a few weeks' time, create a world war, that it almost happened overnight and that people were so shocked by how quickly it happened, that to me is a very important lesson from a hundred years ago that I think people really need to consider given the situation we're looking at globally today. And I think in many ways people are almost orchestrated into constant involvement with sports and entertainment so that um, with social media and, and all the good that can come of it, you also have the possibility that people will be almost uh, becoming addicted to uh, a constant flow of information, often about sports or entertainment or trivia, and uh, a bit of sleep at the wheel while, uh, you know, they may not even be able to figure out uh, where exactly some of the places are on the globe where the United States has their and their weapons aimed and people are in the crosshairs. You know, it's just amazing if when you look at World War One, just how quickly so many different parties really kind of blundered their way into that war to the point where there was really no turning back for any of them. They had become so deeply involved with the alliances and with the geopolitics and the colonial exploitation and all of those things that... World War One almost, you know, it, it, it's almost as if it took people by surprise, but it really shouldn't have. And I feel similarly about the situation today. I, there's very little reason for people to be surprised by what's happening. Well, I think certainly what we're seeing are manifestations of policies that were developed under the Clinton and the Obama administrations. And maybe to some extent, Eric, uh, we grew accustomed to a kind of a mask, a more suave, a more... Uh, uh, appealing mask that uh, officials in those earlier administrations could put on as they nevertheless ordered tremendous bloodshed and cruelty at the hands of United States military and uh, foreign policies. I, I certainly think about Iraq under economic sanctions that punished to death uh, 500,000 children under the age of five. Uh, Certainly, as we see the invasion of Afghanistan, the shock and awe bombing, these were um, violent and bloody and destructive acts. But uh, maybe President Trump doesn't have so much of a mask, but he also seems so unpredictable that it it, it could be that the, the United States would get uh, 
um, as you say, into a quagmire of alliances that would lead toward a, a world war. It's, it's a very, very frightening time. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. The idea that, uh, you know, Trump is something completely different from what's come before, I think, is something of a distortion. I think that Trump is uh, rightly could be called an escalation of what we have seen before and certainly a more uh, transparently and nakedly imperialistic and and aggressive, belligerent, uh, you know, warmongering kind of uh, – you know, CEO of the empire, but certainly it's, you know, Obama was perfectly happy to be complicit in the genocide against the people of Yemen being carried out by the Saudis and uh, backing them covertly, involved in fomenting war in Syria, of course, the egregious crime of the destruction of Libya, and many other things. So this is, I think, again, a moment for reflecting on the systemic nature of the empire rather than one administration to the next. And then it is worth commenting on the switch on the part of many media people who regarded uh, President Trump as a buffoon, as a kind of a, uh, an adult, and then when he was willing to launch 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles into Syria, then suddenly he became presidential material. That That's something we should be ashamed of, and, and, and yet uh, for the, I suppose the deep state or the establishment in in Washington D.C. and in the Pentagon that has so much control over the mainstream media, this is par for the course. If you prove yourself by being willing to go to war, then you can gain acceptance. Well, that's right. And 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 when they say you know that that Trump became presidential the night that he ordered the missile strikes in Syria, they're not kidding because in the you know in in their perception what presidential means is the ability to order the deaths of tens, hundreds, thousands of people, uh, the ability to, you know, execute the empire's agenda irrespective of human rights or any other concerns. That's what it means to be presidential in the eyes of the establishment and, quite frankly, of the corporate media. And then, of course, you know, Donald Trump describes it as an evening when he was having his chocolate cake with the yeah. uh, Chinese prime minister. And he, he even got the wrong country when he was describing what happened. It's he incredible. Said they yeah. Well, you know, to be to be fair, who can keep track of all the of all the mm-hmm. deaths at the hands of the U.S. in Iraq at this point? Well, certainly um, when they spoke about the mother of all bombs being used in Afghanistan, um, that's a misogynist term, and, and it shouldn't be used at all. But but thinking back to the destruction of Iraq and the Shakhtar bombing, the um, destruction in Afghanistan, the, the ways in which the United States has assisted Israel in destroying Gaza and, and in Lebanon, I I think greed is the genesis of all this bombing. I think that it's a it's a matter of um, the United States wanting to say to every other country in the world, if you don't subordinate yourselves to fulfill our perceived national interest, we could eliminate you. And it's also a way of saying to the the weapon makers, those who develop and store and sell and use these horrid, horrid weapons and weapon systems, don't worry, you, you, you can keep going, we'll keep feeding you, even if it means that the resources we desperately need to find our way through global warming crises, to solve problems of world hunger and disease that won't be available, don't worry, we'll keep giving them to you. 
Yeah, and uh, we're we're certainly not going to use any resources to oh I don't know make America great. Well, it's interesting that Donald Trump has talked about America first, America first. And it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you think about it, the first to drop nuclear bombs, the yeah. first in <laughs> weapon sales, the first in weapon development. Uh, yeah. That's I mean that that's that's exactly right and and uh, again I mean I I say it almost jokingly because I don't think that anybody who uh, has any political savvy could possibly have believed that you know Trump's uh, bloviating about anti-interventionism and rejection of regime change and rejection of foreign war and all of this stuff and questioning of NATO anybody who really believed those talking points or believed that he was going to really pursue such an agenda I think is uh, well I, I, I got a bridge here in Brooklyn to sell them well you know every now and then Eric, I'll go ahead and accept an interview with the right-wing radio talk show host. And um, it's amazing. We won't hold I, that against you, Kathy. <laughs> five minutes into the interview, they, uh, they, they, they begin to, to just scream uh, quite often uh, and, and uphold blatant falsehoods. Um, I had said that I thought negotiation and dialogue was preferable to bombing and 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 the, I guess this was last week. A talk show host said, "Well, give, name one instance. Tell me one time where negotiation had any success." And I said, "Well, I thought it was great that the United States was able to negotiate an agreement with Iran, and that uh, so that that just set him off incredibly." And he said, "You know that that was one of the worst agreements. Now we've enabled Iran to go ahead and in ten years begin developing nuclear weapons and." Um, I actually think that people in Iran have reason to be quite frightened now that the United States will undo that pact and, and might be wishing to uh, collaborate with Saudi Arabia, which clearly wants to fight proxy wars against Iran in some of its movement in places like Yemen, and that the United States, uh, particularly with Mattis going to meet with uh, the Saudis and the Qataris, that, that there may be plans to turn the, the weapons against Iran. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, before we touch on that, though, I want to I want to ask you a little bit about Afghanistan, and partially because you have so much experience there. For listeners who are new to uh, Kathy's work, Kathy regularly makes trips to Afghanistan, works with some of the young, with young people there on a variety of initiatives, and this has been going on for for years now. So, in many ways, Kathy, uh, you have access to experiences, particularly the local perspectives, uh, especially of young people in Afghanistan that I think are really enlightening. So I want to just ask, um, I mean, I know you recently came back from Afghanistan yet again, and uh, have you spoken to anybody in the wake of the dropping of this MOAB, the mother of all bombs, as it's called? Uh, have you spoken to anybody? Uh, what can you tell us about the general you know, area where that happened? What uh, people are saying? How they're responding to this? Uh, what's, what's the perspective of people in Afghanistan? Well, Nangarhar is near the Pakistan border. It, I mean, it could be if there were tunnels uh, that existed that the United States might have in fact uh, constructed some of uh, some of those tunnels when the CIA was setting up military training camps um, trying to help overthrow the Soviet presence in Afghanistan years ago. Um, 
the the number of refugees that are internally displaced inside of Afghanistan numbers close to 1.5 million people. There are another 1.8 million who fled outside of Afghanistan. And people flee precisely because of panic and fear that's occasioned by aerial terrorism, often caused the United States drone attacks, United States military attacks. And can you imagine the terror that people would feel when a bomb explodes with a one mile radius and the water can be contaminated for who knows how many generations, the land won't be arable. And so in areas where people had towns and villages and, and you know, they were raising crops and trying to eke out an existence, people will run. And, and I suppose one of the major experiences I've had going back and forth to Kabul has been to be inside the refugee camps and get to know the child laborers. You know, when people flee and they come to a big city, it's not like the city is going to offer them jobs or homes or sewage and sanitation or clean water or fuel or uh, food. And so people crowd into the most wretched, squalid refugee camps you can imagine. I mean, I'm serious when I say they don't have latrines. Uh, there's no potable water. I, a, a woman who'd fled the fighting in Kunduz showed me the just horrible scars under her arms, and then she clung to me, and she said, I have no bread to give my children. I have no food to give them. And uh, there's... Uh, very harsh, cold winter weather in Afghanistan. And when people have no blankets and they don't have any means to buy wood, they start to burn plastic or boots or old tires or garbage. And so the air quality in Kabul is, is it's like a canyon. And in the winter months particularly, the air quality is so terrible. Your lungs begin to be filled and... and, and um, you know there's something wrong because if you brush your teeth, your saliva is is comes out black. I mean, it's a it's a miserable, terrible existence for people. Now that's before the United States spends enormous amounts of funding and human resource and energy to experiment with a bomb that will cause so much terror and fear and anger and rage. So these. Um, these kinds of attacks are not are not new, um, and 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 many times people on mountainsides trying to collect fuel have been mistaken for fighters, and and they've been directly hit by U.S. air attacks. Uh, the same has happened in Yemen as well, and 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 these are stories that people in the United States very very seldom hear, but. As I get a chance to talk with the young child laborers, you know, the families don't want to send their kids out to work, but there's no other way to bring any income in. And maybe if the kids are, you know, out helping to work in the marketplace, they might be given some scraps of potatoes and turnips that they can bring back so people have something to eat. And my young friends, the Afghan Peace Volunteers, they actually have a very good survey that they use and they go out into the refugee camps and up the mountainsides. And they ask people, how often did you get beans in the last month? What's your access to water? Who works in your family? What's the income? And they fill out these very important surveys. And then from that, they try to determine 
how they can inter-ethnically distribute uh, food in the form of cooking oil and beans and rice to at least some families and then let those young child laborers instead go to school. And they've, they've managed to help 100 families that way and also to determine which families are most in need of blankets and then they pay widows to make the blankets. And so th this is the kind of surveillance that's needed. But our drones flying overhead, patrolling the skies, uh, surveilling who might become a, you know, in the crosshairs of the next bomb and uh, claiming that they're understanding patterns of life in Afghanistan is, is a shameful, uh, horrible waste of resources that will never tell us what we really need to know about Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that is always touching uh, when I hear about the experiences of people, uh, of young people in Afghanistan is that you'll describe all of these horrific uh, life circumstances, whether it's, you know, gathering, you know, scraps to feed their family or whatever. And yet I've never had a conversation with you about Afghanistan that isn't laden with anecdotes and and uh, story, you know, references and stories and perspectives of young people who manage to stay positive, who manage to continue to do work for their communities, who manage to uh, continue trying to better themselves. And that's something that I always really appreciate about our conversations, Kathy, because that side of the struggle that these people live is almost never told. And, and it's, you know, you really kind of have to be on the ground the way that you are to know that and to be able to convey that to people back here. I, I, I mean, I really appreciate that. And of course, I, I just want to ask the initiatives that you've been involved in there, whether it's blanket programs or what have you, I mean, these things are still ongoing, are they not? And, and, and they're growing seemingly every year, as I understand. Well, it is amazing to me. The, uh, the, the Afghan Peace Volunteers started out being maybe eight or ten youngsters, and they're, you know, they have this habit of growing older. So they're now, uh, some of them, getting married and having children, a couple of finished university studies. Um, but they have a center now. They call it the Border Free Center. And there are actually 20 teams that they meet together. They figure out how they're going to uh, budget whatever resources they can amass over the course of a year. Um, they they have education sessions that are they're good, worthwhile education sessions so that they can better understand world history, their history, global warming, world hunger. Uh, one young fellow, Naweed, he's, he's very bright. He was troubled because his nephew lives in the Nangarhar province. And before this horrible bomb was dropped, just the sound of a drone would send the child running under a table or he would go into a panic attack. And um, now we developed over the next several months a project called Fly Kites, Not Drones. And so while I was there, uh, we filled two bus loads and went to the highest hilltop outside of Kabul. And, and the kids um, had to help me quite a lot to get up to the top of that hill. And then they flew kites, and each of the kites had a picture of a drone uh, and and some sort of message saying drones are bad for people, drones kill. And even the youngest little girl uh, could tell you what is the problem with drones. 
and and they were just uh, dizzy with excitement when some of the kites would just become dots in the sky way up above. Uh, but I think they all also took away that particular message, fly kites, not drones. Yes, indeed. Um, I think uh, we, we should probably take a break now. And uh, on the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in Yemen and, of course, the media outcry or rather lack of one and uh, some of the politics behind that and a lot more to touch on with Kathy Kelly. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. first part of the program well of course you did because who tunes into half a podcast uh uh you know the first part of the program we were talking a lot about you know the 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 global situation but also some of the personal side of this and again I, i i urge people part of this show is about informing you know about bringing guests on that can illuminate complex subjects and so forth but part of this is really also about energizing people and mobilizing people and getting them to think about ways that they can get involved. Something like the programs that you're talking about ongoing in Afghanistan and the corollary you know, groups that work with them here in the United States, one example being Voices for Creative Nonviolence, but certainly not the only one. I think that this is a very important uh, aspect of, of the struggle that we're engaged in that often gets overlooked. So I want to commend you for the work you do, Kath 
Kathy and urge people to go to vcnv.org, uh, globaldaysoflistening.com, ourjourneytosmile.com, and a number of other places. So uh, thank you for all the work you do, Kathy. Um, now, I want to touch on Yemen and the situation in Yemen. And I know that there's an action that you've been involved in and you've been promoting that's, uh, you know, meant to raise awareness about the situation in Yemen. So tell us a little bit about that and then we'll broaden out from there and talk about some of the hidden political side of the uh, conflict in Yemen. I shouldn't even call it the conflict, the slaughter of Yemen. So tell us about the initiative and about your uh, perspective on this. Well, you know, Eric, I barely ever watch television. And um, I was in New York on the day that President Trump addressed both houses of Congress. And I, I, I had to give a talk at the, at the Mary House Catholic Worker uh, two days later, and I thought, well, I should I should probably watch that talk and see what he says. And um, I have to say, it just it just flattened me. Uh, you might recall that it, it was during that talk that the widow of Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owens was um, brought into the gallery, and for four minutes, uh, everybody on both sides of the aisle stood and applauded as President Trump assured her that her husband, who had been killed in a um, special operations action as a Navy SEAL fighter, was looking down on her from heaven and, and that he would always be remembered as a hero. And at no point ever in the course of that uh, tribute to him or um, the applause as, as she wept, was the country ever mentioned where he was killed. Well, that country was Yemen. And had any context been given to what had happened in Yemen when he was killed, it, it wouldn't have looked heroic. And so um, I decided that at Mary House Catholic Worker, I would talk about Yemen and, and set other notes aside. And as we together listened and thought about what was happening in Yemen today, we, we decided we, we, we had to try to do something. And, and out of that came a fast that was a six-day fast. And what, what we were learning was that in Al-Ghal, where the Navy SEAL night raid had occurred, uh, there were also, besides the Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owens, uh, 29 people, Yemeni civilians, killed, 16 of whom were women and children. And you may have sometimes heard when you've interviewed people about drones that in military parlance, when people are operating drones out of Creech Air Force Base in the United States or Volk Field or um, Hancock Field in Syracuse and so many other places in the United States, when a, a drone airstrike happens and you can see on the screen some grainy little figures running away, they call those people squirters. So as Iona Craig described when uh, she risked her life to go to Agayal and interview survivors, they said that the night raid happened when Navy SEALs burst into a house trying to um, attack and, and, and uh, imprison some people inside the house. They believed that there were um, Al-Qaeda fighters that they were attacking. Uh, neighbors came running and thought that these were rival tribes tribal people that had made this attack. And then they saw the 
the fighter planes overhead and they realized it was either, either Saudi or U.S. planes attacking them. But they fought and they fought hard. And so there were some women and children who, who wanted to run for their lives. And I suppose they'd be considered squirters. They were then attacked and killed. So you had this terrible loss of life in a, in a village that meant no harm to people in the United States, was no threat whatsoever. And this is a Yemeni village in a country which is on the brink of famine. It's a country where there are now 3.3 million children and either pregnant or lactating women suffering severe acute malnutrition. You, if you survive, you will always have the chronic effects from that. There are 460,000 children facing severe malnutrition. The main port uh, has been blockaded by the Saudis and the five cranes that would be used to deliver food through that port have all been destroyed. Well, 70% of Yemen's food comes through that port. So this is a state of siege that's creating creating a potential state of famine. It's a conflict-driven starvation right now, but the United States is complicit with the Saudis. It helps their airplanes refuel in the air. It's uh, approved of the Saudi blockade of the major port. It's The United States itself has been attacking people in um, areas of central and southern Yemen. And the, meanwhile, the Trump administration has slashed the budgets for UN agencies that might be able to help deliver crucially, vitally, desperately needed aid and relief. That's right. That's and right. One of the things that I think is often overlooked is the fact that the United States is not simply in a support role. You know, the the U.S. is, of course, supporting the Saudi, its Saudi allies, backing them with uh, advanced military hardware, giving them all kinds of financial support and, and uh, strategic uh, communications support and all sorts of things. But... We should also remember that in the years leading up to the beginning of the Saudi war, the United States was heavily involved in a so-called war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was a CIA drone war in Yemen, including... Uh, what amounts to the creation of a puppet government led by the, the, the deposed government under Hadi, which is what the Saudis are trying to prop back up. So the U.S. is not only complicit in the war that's going on right now, the U.S. is complicit in creating the conditions that led to a civil war and in exploiting those conditions for its own strategic benefit. Of course, Yemen being on the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is the access to the Red Sea, the access to the Horn of Africa. This is one of the critical choke points in the world. It's a it's a you know a crown jewel for strategic planners, and this is the reason why the United States is starving millions of children in Yemen. This is the reason why U.S. Uh, proxies in the Gulf have free reign to bomb the people of Yemen and to destroy that country. And just across from uh, the point, to kind of the tip of the peninsula. Uh, in the Horn of Africa, you have the teeny country of Djibouti. And the United States has its largest military base in Africa in Djibouti. And, and there are also, um, there are actually five countries that have military bases in this tiny little country, and the Chinese are now building a base. So it's almost as though uh, in, in an area of the world where you not only have a, a, a desperate 
condition of near famine in Yemen, you've also in South Sudan, Nigeria, and uh, Somalia, droughts that have led to people migrating, additional conflict-driven conditions near famine. So a trio of near famine in each of those three countries. And instead of trying to alleviate those kinds of conditions of desperation of children potentially starving, of people walking miles and miles and miles to a place where they think they might get humanitarian aid and then they find there's no water, there's no food, elders eating the trees. Uh, Instead of alleviating that, the United States has constructed a huge military base and forward operating bases and will be in competition with other countries to try to control the resources of the region and the pricing and the flow of resources and, of course, the um, very, uh, as you say, precious naval uh, transport, and sta- and also make sure that the Saudis won't be wooed away from alliance with the United States economically. I mean, China is now a major trading partner for Saudi Arabia, and I suppose the United States is very frightened that someday the Chinese could convince the Saudis to start um, placing their currency on the renminbi instead of on the dollar. Well, that's right. And in fact, you really hit on one of the critical uh, geopolitical questions of our day, uh, the uh, increased competition between the United States and China. China is a rising economic power, and we see that actually in each of the conflicts that you just mentioned, I think uh, most acutely perhaps with South Sudan. Remembering South Sudan is a country that was created at the initiative of the United States, uh, carved out of the former country of Sudan, uh, and specifically to dislodge the oil fields of the south from the north, which was seen as as an adversary of the United States in the region. Similarly, the rise of Boko Haram and the humanitarian disaster around Lake Chad, which is in many ways tied directly to the extraction of energy from the Lake Chad Basin, one of the largest energy reserves in West Africa. And similarly in in Somalia, where the U.S. played a key role in uh, during the Bush administration and into the Obama administration in creating the conditions for the famine there. So in each of these cases, and certainly as we were mentioning in Yemen, it is U.S. policy that really lays the groundwork for the conflicts that emerge. Certainly those conflicts take on local characteristics and they have long, you know, long-standing feuds between groups and tribes and ethnic minorities and what have you. But it is above all the United States that, that creates the conditions and foments these types of conflicts. You know, one of the most chilling lines I ever heard, Eric, came from Henry Kissinger when he was talking about the Iran-Iraq war. And he said, things couldn't be better. They're killing each other and using our weapons to do it. And I, I think that, you know, when these civil wars rage and, 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 and sometimes they've been created out of people becoming desperate and displaced and, and not having any other way to feed their families other than to join some militia or other uh, then I think they, they, this hasn't been seen as a uh, an object of, of great remorse by United States military and foreign policy planners, but rather as a situation, as you say, that can be exploited because people will be so caught up in the civil wars they won't be able to defend their uh, most basic human rights, including their, their right to, to possess what is on the soil where they are growing. 
That's right. And one of my one of my fears returning to this uh, question of Yemen, one of my fears about the, the, the war in Yemen or the, 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 the slaughter of Yemen is that there will be presented to the American people Yemen as a pretext for war with Iran, because of course the mm-hmm. United States frames the conflict in Yemen as one of uh, Iran's doing. That Iranian proxies, the, the the so-called Houthi movement, that the Houthis are merely Iranian proxies, and that if and if uh, a war must be fought against the Houthis backing the Saudis, this really is a war against Iran. That is the mentality of people like Mattis. That is the mentality of people like John Bolton, who although he's not in the uh, Trump administration, is still rather influential. This is one of the dangers, and we open this conversation, Kathy, talking about escalation and escalation in the age of Trump. And I can see Yemen as one of those critical points where the war could escalate and become a regional conflict. And I think that's why it's so important to resist these broad brushstrokes that would paint the Houthis as people who are uh, dependent on Iranian weapons or who are even identified with the Iranian practice of Shia Islam because um, there, there, it's not the case that there's just sort of one monolithic practice of Islam under Shia faith. The, the, the Houthis apparently do not actually share the uh, same kind of faith practice that the uh, Ayatollahs uh are following in Iran. There, there is a difference, and the, and it's not the case that the Iranians have uh, been giving even a, a fraction of the weaponry and the military assistance to the Houthis that the United States has been giving to Saudi Arabia. I mean, even just under the Obama administration, it was $115 billion worth of weapon sales being made available to the Saudis. And as you mentioned, uh, other ways in which the United States has uh, collaborated with and assisted the Saudi government. So uh, to to compare what Iran might have supplied to the Houthi tribes is is um, it, it, it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. There's no doubt, and uh, I think that it's it's really critical to note that that uh, that equivalence that is made, particularly by neocons who have this uh, fetish for the destruction of Iran, but in general by the foreign policy establishment, that this is, uh, in my view, totally discredited. Now, obviously, the Houthi movement and the the the, the rebels in in Yemen they will have allies, of course, and there are always covert you know relations and things like that but to your point the idea that the that the Houthis are just these proxies and puppets of the Iranians is to completely ignore the entire history of the Houthi movement and how it emerged and and how this became such a conflict but you know one other aspect that's also overlooked is the oppression of Shia inside of Saudi Arabia by the Saudi government let's not forget that although the Saudi you know Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country a Sunni dictatorship there is a significant Shia minority in that country, and uh, we've seen a number of examples, including horrendous executions of some of their leaders, that uh, I think paint a very dark picture of what the Saudis are doing throughout the Arabian Peninsula, not just in Yemen. Well, certainly we should pay attention to Bahrain and the United States. I mean, I think in Bahrain there are maybe 600,000 people who are uh, considered to be Bahraini citizens. They have 
others who are working there um, who have been bought in by the uh, kingdom. Uh, but okay, so 600,000 Bahrainis and the United States has given them six million dollars worth of fighter jets to protect these 600,000 uh, Bahraini citizens. Well, it's really just an adjunct of the uh, Saudi Air Force and, and the Bahraini uh, violations of human rights uh, uh, are just horrible. They at one point um, had in the aftermath of what might have been called the um, Arab Spring in Bahrain, when people had gone to the the Pearl Mosque and had um, wanted to express their desire for uh, basic human rights, uh, people were beaten, tortured, and killed. And when doctors tried to treat those who were taken to the hospital after they'd been beaten and tortured, the doctors themselves were beaten and tortured. And uh, the Bahrainis have been uh, vicious in their um, uh, imprisonment and uh, murder of of activists. And, and, of course, as soon as that Arab Spring effort had begun, Saudi troops came across. Uh, I mean, there's just a, a tiny bridge separating uh, Bahrain from the Saudi peninsula. And they came across and helped to militarize the the the, the attack against people who had, had wanted to have some expression of human rights. And they've been very, very brave. Nabil Rajab is still in prison now in, in Bahrain, and it's because they, they accused him of tweeting. <laughs> he had uh, been considered subversive because he had uh, tweeted some activities after he had been released from a, a lengthy imprisonment. Yes. Now, uh, before we run out of time, I think it's obviously incumbent on us to speak a little bit about the ongoing war in Syria and uh, over the border in Iraq, because, of course, this is one of the flashpoints globally right now. Um, now, I think that Syria has become such a complicated issue, especially on the left, because of the sort of divides that that have separated different factions of the left. Some uh, who back the uh, the Syrian government, who see this as an international war waged by the United States, and I would and and its allies, NATO allies, and its Gulf proxies, and I certainly uh, agree with that on you know on the on a general level. However, I think there's also a lot more nuance that needs to be added into that including the situation on the ground in 2011, how that uh, has evolved into this internationalized war, and many other factors that go into it. But what I want to talk to you about, and uh, you know, as we run out of time here, is something you said earlier about the importance of dialogue, because Syria has become an international incident waiting to happen, where the United States and the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks and the Saudis and many others are directly or indirectly involved. And so I've been saying for quite a while now that, you know, despite what people might say and despite the, you know, optimistic or maybe it's not so optimistic, uh, you know, uh, view that some people take, I don't believe there is any kind of solution that is going to be brought to Syria on the battlefield. It just doesn't seem possible given the array of forces on both sides. And so here again is an example of just what you said earlier, the importance of dialogue and the importance of, of centering 
peace and peace work and peace activism in the context of Syria. Uh, so talk a little bit about that and the way in which I think peace has kind of been taken off the table. Well, I think you're right that the idea of um, great powers being able to pressure various groups to lay down their weapons, silence the guns, and um, sit down to negotiation and dialogue with a promise that if they'll lay down their weapons, this is how the world might assist reconstruction and getting back to some kind of normalcy in life for, for future generations. Uh, that that doesn't get held up very often. That we 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 seem nowhere near any kind of armistice or uh, treaty or um, ceasefire. Even one might hope that as the month of Ramadan approaches in June, maybe people would begin to talk about ceasefires. I don't think it is up to the United States to decide who should get the upper hand in these horrible civil wars. Even though I attribute much of the descent into civil war to the United States invasion of Iraq and occupation of Iraq and bringing so much weaponry into the area and creating so much desire for revenge and retaliation. Um, and looking the other way as the Islamic State evolved and emerged mm -hmm. because they thought it would be politically expedient and bringing CIA onto the Turkish border and funneling weapons into the hands of their preferred fighters and spending billions of dollars arming and training various rebels, uh, terror groups and, and such to wage war in Syria. It's a, you know, it's a nasty and multi-layered and complex history that uh, certainly Obama has to own a lot of that and uh, Trump is now seemingly escalating it and I think that this is really one of the dangers because as we mentioned earlier in this conversation the history of World War I in 1914 is not exclusively the history of diplomacy it's also the history of uh, you know the powder keg that, that, that was Bosnia and was Serbia and was you know the Balkans and similarly I think today Syria really and Iraq present themselves as perhaps a 21st century uh, corollary or parallel to that and that's one of the things that's really most frightening about it. And so in that context, I don't think it helps to demonize various leaders. I mean, the leaders of our country aren't all that great or perfect either. And so uh, to demonize Vladimir Putin, to demonize Bashar al-Assad, to demonize Saddam Hussein when he was in charge of Iraq, it, it gives people the idea that there's only one person living in a particular place. And if you could just, you know, beat that person down into the ground or eliminate that person, then you could arrive at a solution. And, and that's cartoons. It's not reality. And it, it doesn't help. I think instead, the language of seeking diplomacy, negotiation, dialogue, uh, asking that people um, imagine laying down the weapons and having a time when the, uh, the, the terrible bloodletting could be at least in a cessation so that there might be some exploration of, of what these various factions need and want and, and what the grievances are. Uh, this would be so much preferable to trying to figure out how to get weapons and uh, an upper hand to a particular group that the United States might pick at one point and then perhaps change their mind at another point. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the United Nations has been 
I think in some ways a massive failure when you think about its founding mission to eliminate the scourge of warfare. And yet there is no other international body right now that you can turn to. And so I, I, I urge people to read a document written by Dennis Halliday, Hans von Spoenig, and Richard Falk, three former UN officials who, who still hold out some slim hope that the United Nations could eventually have a potential to arbitrate these conflicts, but not as long as it's at the hand, uh, subject to the United States, pushing and pushing for military solutions. Absolutely. And I don't think that uh, and I don't want to give the false impression that either one of us is so naive to think that everybody who's fighting in Syria is a Syrian, that it's not become an internationalized war with mercenaries who are fighting for money and fighting for, you know, human trafficking networks and all kinds of really awful things that are happening. But at the same time, none of that, at least from my perspective, none of that is an excuse for not pursuing peace given the reality of the situation uh, in Syria. And, and that reality is one where, in my view at least, Syria is headed down the road that Lebanon traveled 30 years ago. You know, And if you read the history of the, the, the civil war in Lebanon, and Robert Fisks is one of the best, I mean, if you read the history of that war, I mean, that is a terrible and awful price that that country paid to finally achieve some semblance of peace. And I, I worry that if we don't center peace activism around the issue of Syria, then we are likely to see Syria devolve further for more than a decade, perhaps two, perhaps longer, to the point where Syria really becomes just a memory. Well, the nonviolent peace force under the guidance of Mel Duncan has been trying very, very hard to build civil society groups that could come to a table for negotiations within Syria and, and um, you know, risk their lives to help to try to form this potential. So I encourage people to stay in touch with the nonviolent peace force. Absolutely. Um, Kathy, in, in just a couple minutes we have left, tell me what's happening on April 21st and what Global Days of Listening is all about. Um, I think this is an important action. We're recording this just in the evening uh, on the 18th, so hopefully hopefully people will be hearing this uh, on April 19, 20, and 21. So what's happening on April 21st? Why is this important for people to pay attention to? Young people in Afghanistan have been hosting an international Skype phone call for years now. Um, it, it goes on for three hours on the 21st of every month. And you can go to globaldaysoflistening.com and see the schedule for it. And what it involves is, is being in touch with people in other parts of the world, posing um, various questions, hearing, learning from people, not through their mainstream media, but directly from individuals, especially people that are directly affected by war. So I've heard conversations with people in Russia, with people in Gaza, with people in Pakistan, with people in various parts across the United States at Standing Rock. Um, they're very concerned now for Yemen, and they'll be talking to, to some of the people who participated in the fast. And it's, a, it's also um, an opportunity to hear from people who are trying to experiment with permaculture and with uh, growing crops in sensible ways and uh, dealing with some of our environmental catastrophes. And then out of that, 
the, the young people in Afghanistan have really learned and grown and and made decisions about how they want to shape their small community. So it's it's riveting, and and anybody can participate in it as well. If you want to sign up to speak, just um, get in touch with the organizers through that website, um, globaldaysoflistening.com. That's great. Thank you for that. And uh, a very worthwhile uh, effort, I would say. And also, I just want to give another plug uh, to the organization that Kathy is affiliated with, that's Voices for Creative Nonviolence, vcnv.org, so you can follow all the work that they're doing. Uh, Kathy Kelly, gosh, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show, but I most really want to thank you for the work that you do. Uh, I mean, again, it, it, it fills me with a, with, with the sense of hope that, um, when I, when I talk to you about what people are doing in Afghanistan, what's going on around Yemen, it all seems so depressing. And yet somehow when I talk to you, it seems just that much less depressing. So thank you. For well, you that. know, Eric, if I could just say there was a time when we would be in Baghdad with voices in the wilderness and wonder, is it an entire wilderness is it does anybody want to hear what we've seen and heard while we've been with mothers and their children at bedsides and in Iraqi hospitals and always Alexander Coburn and Jeffrey St. Clair would write to us and say anything you send us will be eager to receive and we were so so grateful to counterpunch and remain so Thank you so much for that, Kathy, and thank you for all the work you're doing. Listeners, do check out uh, all of the uh, the websites that we were talking about there. And uh, as always, I thank you for tuning in. And quickly, if you want to just follow some of the other work that I'm doing outside of Counterpunch Radio, do go to my website, stopimperialism.org. You can follow the work there, and you can, uh, if you want to hear the other podcasts, you can go on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Eric Drazer. Become a subscriber there and get access to more content uh, than just, you know, Beyond Counterpunch Radio. So anyway, gosh, enough self-promotion. <laughs> Kathy, thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thanks, thanks, thanks again. Speak to you all real soon. <laughs>